All right, gang. As promised, as I said, what was going to happen, part two of the John Carpenter filmography breakdown, analysis, whatever the hell I'm calling it. Uh, Last week, thank you all for listening in, giving me some downloads. Last week, I blabbered on for, gosh, like I think it was two hours and 40 minutes for the first part of this two-part series. I I don't know. (laughs) of John Carpenter's filmography, one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, A lot of great positive response with part one. I mean, obviously, I'm talking about films like Halloween and Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China. And as great as that is, as great as the response I got for part one, I'm curious to see how part two goes here. Because part two is going to be a little shorter. Um, You know, this is where maybe he isn't cranking out a movie year after year after year after year. Actually, well, technically, in the early 90s, he did do a few films one after another. Um, but by the time the uh, decade started wrapping up, he really only had about one or two left in him. And then took, like, a big hiatus. And, you know, uh, he definitely was still making, in my opinion, interesting work. And I had to go back and watch some stuff. And this is really where my knowledge of Carpenter does kind of fall off. I think like a lot of people, uh, really kind of the late 90s into the early 2000s, he only really had a few films that were box office bombs. They did not do well at all, but I still think there's some interesting stories behind them or some interesting information I was able to dig up. So yeah, obviously from 1974 till 1988, uh, Carpenter was that, that was the launch of his career from making Dark Star while he was at USC all the way up till They Live at the end of the 80s, which uh, has become one of the biggest cultural phenomenon genre films of all time, in my opinion. And he takes a few years off to, I don't know, to do whatever, but we don't see a film out of him for uh, till a couple years into the 1990s. And I always thought this was a interesting uh, start to the decade for him. And I think it's an interesting uh, choice in general for him to make because I think I said at the end of the last show, I didn't even know this was a John Carpenter movie when I was watching it when I was a little kid. Uh, I didn't even know he directed it till maybe about 10 years ago. And I remember hearing somebody talking about it. Like, remember that, remember that, remember that movie with Chevy Chase (laughs) and, going like, oh my God, that was on religiously on like HBO or the Stars channel. I feel like it was on every morning before I went to school in like fucking kindergarten, which would have mean that it came out maybe like a year or two earlier. And so to kick things off here with the films of John Carpenter part two, uh, I'm kicking it off with his first directorial film of the 1990s that is 1992's memoirs of an invisible man it all started on a tuesday in march if george hadn't introduced me to alice let's not do anything cheap and meaningless okay what do i owe you she hadn't been so spectacular maybe i wouldn't have gotten so loaded that night ten minutes would be as good as new None of this would have happened. Something's happened at the Magnoscopics facility in Santa Mira. Next thing I knew, I went from high profile to no profile. What have they done to me? Wait a minute, who are you guys? Keep your mouths shut, all of you. 
in a state of molecular flux. You want to live? You're going to have to trust us. Where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. I'm here. Sort of. I want my molecules back! Now there's a price on my head. The single most exotic intelligence asset on the planet is ours. I don't sleep well. I can see through my eyelids. I can see through the top of my head. But I'll never sell out. Think of the adventure we could have together. Yeah, we can go to Frontierland. Don't be afraid. It's me, Nick. You want to sit down? If not for Alice. We're the only people that can give you your life back. I'd be lost forever. You have a face again. You don't have any body makeup, do you? Dropped about 10 pounds. But I'd look great naked. She saw me through it all. I got him. Nick, I love you. Chevy Chase. Morning. Morning. Daryl Hannah. Wait, how am I going to tell my mom about this? Just tell her you met a guy. Could be serious. He's transparent. Memoirs of an Invisible Man. A John Carpenter film. So, like I mentioned uh, before I played that little trailer there, uh, I, I caught this film when I was a kid a lot. It was on HBO a lot, or one of the movie channels, religiously. I saw this so many times, and like, you know, there was not really any violence, or, I mean, there was, there's violence, but there wasn't really like heavy violence in it that you've seen in past Carpenter films, or, you know, a creepy villain of some sorts, so... I was kind of able to sit through it and enjoy it. And it, it, it was a cool little movie. And I think the catch is, is Chevy Chase is the lead in this film. And Chevy Chase was, I think, trying to attempt a transition from being more of a comic actor to trying to uh, get into more serious roles. And I, I think that's a perfect definition of memoirs of an invisible man. Uh, there's parts of the movie that are funny, silly, comical. There's, you know, some physical humor, things that maybe aren't even supposed to be funny that still come off kind of funny. But you feel that at times it's trying to get serious about things from time to time. And maybe that's just a um, Chevy Chase's per career pursuit trying to come to the surface within this film because uh, it's a little bit of both. It, it goes back and forth. So the plot of this movie goes a little something like this. Nick Halloway, played by Chevy Chase, is an average businessman who undergoes an extraordinary change when an experiment gone wrong turns him invisible. And a government operative named David Jenkins, played by Sam Neill, discovers Nick in his see-through condition at the scene of the accident. And he arranges for him to be taken into custody, but Nick escapes. And then it turns into a cat and mouse game between Sam Neill and Chevy Chase's character. And you also bring into the play, uh, you also bring in Daryl Hannah's character. She's kind of the love interest uh, to Chevy Chase's uh, character. Um, to talk about the other cast members, Daryl Hannah's great in it. Uh, she's a bit of a damsel in distress at the time, but it really was a sign of the time, early 90s. But um, I think still she comes through really fine in the performance uh, she's playing. Uh, but a, a big takeaway from this movie that a lot of people think is that Sam Neill steals the film. He steals it. And I have to agree. I mean, this is very much a Chevy Chase vehicle. It's supposed to be. And this is about a year before Jurassic Park came out. And Sam Neill had been around for a while. I never worked with John Carpenter, but he eventually would go on to do one more movie, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But 
Sam Neill uh, really runs away with this film. He's he is. It's almost like he's acting in the wrong movie. Like he's really good, and at times he doesn't fit for how good he is for the subject matter and the material. But he really is kind of the overall standout person in this film. Um, so let me go into kind of Carpenter's side of things with this. Uh, he had been on a bit of a break for, you know, since they live. Uh, so late 80s into the early 90s, he had kind of gone on a hiatus of shopping projects around executives, you know, doing any, any getting anything off the ground to try and get made. Um, he had just gone through a divorce, I believe, with Adriana Barbeau. And he had linked up with his wife that he is still married to to this day, uh, Sandy King. They had gotten together in 1990. Um, so, yeah, there, there's that. He had a lot going on in his personal life. And I think that was just a, a time in his life where he needed to focus on things, you know, the bigger picture, not just cranking out movies, even though as a director that can be kind of fun. Um, so Memoirs of an Invisible Man, I guess, lands on his plate. I guess a few years before it ever even came out and he was attached to do it for a while, but they couldn't get like a name actor really to want to jump on board with it. And I believe Chevy Chase was the first to come on board um, because of everything I just said. He was trying to get away from comedy and do something a little more serious. Now, I believe this film is adapted from a book written by... Uh, Harry F. Saint, who was a Wall Street businessman who looked for a career change and basically wrote Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Um, some of my information has got some holes in that here as I'm looking through my notes, but I believe that's how it went. Uh, ended up landing on Chevy Chase's plate first. And he, of course, went to some of his buddies, guys like Ivan Reitman, uh, to adapt the book and reportedly took them the better part of two years to get their screenplay into a workable film, at which point they submitted it to the executives at Warner's. They were satisfied with their efforts, but Chase wa was not. I guess the way it goes here in the book that I referenced back on the first episode, I'm still referencing here, Assault on the System, the nonconformance cinema of John Carpenter, written by Troy Howarth. Uh, Chevy Chase noticed within the first few pages of the script, once um, his character would become invisible, all of a sudden, he's in a taxi looking up women's skirts, and it's just very Clark Griswold from the Vacation movies. Uh, so, yeah, that ended up being a pass on the project. Uh, I also, I, I guess there were a lot of other kind of big name genre filmmakers, big genre filmmaker names that kind of circled the project a little bit. Uh, Joe Dante's name gets thrown around, obviously, making things like The Burbs and The Howling back in the early 80s. Uh, but they, Chevy Chase ended up trying for a director, uh, Richard Donner, the original Superman, the Omen. Um, yeah. And again, you know, no avail. Didn't work out with that one. That would have been interesting to see this as a Richard Donner film. <laughs> I guess it was after pretty much so many directors passed on it. Someone finally said Carpenter's name. And I guess one of the producers that was attached at the time said, yes, let's approach John. And they, I guess he was a big, um, big trouble in little China fan. So they approached him, but the studio wasn't really into it because of a lot of the box office bombs at the end of the eighties from big trouble in little China on for Carpenter. I guess he had not had a financial hit since Starman, which is 84, but they greenlit the project. Uh, it 
went full steam ahead, Warner Brothers afforded the film with a luxury budget of $40 million. It was the biggest budget uh, Carpenter had worked with to date, and it was largely in place to accommodate the extensive visual effects demanded by the script. Uh, The studio's faith in the project had a lot less to do with John than with his leading man, however. Up until this time, Chase had enjoyed a long stretch of good luck at the box office. The comedies he was so anxious to grow away from were raking in money, and despite his reputation for being a little difficult, audience warned to his smart-ass screen persona. With star Chase's caliber so deeply involved in the project, it seemed like a sure-fire winner. Uh, Also need to add in the fact that the visual effects artists were Industrial Light and Magic, one of the most biggest well-known uh, post-production services in the in the industry to do these special effects. That's why these effects are so cool. Like just seeing parts of buildings invisible and seeing Chevy Chase running around, and all you see is like a pair of shorts, a tank top, and like a one of those sweat sweat headbands for when your forehead gets sweaty. They're cool special effects. It's it, it's it's really a lot of fun. Now I think really the film is good but i also think some of the combination of is it comedy is it drama is it kind of some suspense at times even uh boils down to the fact that uh you have a guy like john carpenter and you have a guy like chevy chase and it has been said in multiple hollywood stories that chevy chase is not easy to work with I don't know that for a fact. I'm just going off of information I've accumulated. Um, people, There have been people who've worked with him in the past who have said he's just not fun to work with. Uh, he's difficult. Um, difficult could mean a lot of things. Difficult could mean he's actually just an artist with a vision. You know, Difficult could mean he's just an asshole. Like, I, I don't know. It could mean a lot of different things. I'm not going to go into the whole Chevy Chase is hard to work with thing. But I do have to touch on the fact that supposedly him and John Carpenter clashed a lot on set and their visions clashed a lot uh, because Carpenter is very much a director who's accustomed to being in charge on set. And it's not really an ego thing. It's just you stick to one vision. And so therefore, the film doesn't come out, you know, polluted with different kind of vibes throughout it. You just stick to one man's vision and go and if it falls it's on that man or who man or woman whoever is in the director's chair it falls on them um if uh you know and then chevy chase who had been at this project for about five years trying to get it made you know his background comes from working with multiple different people to get a project made you know he started at saturday night live uh where the rumors kind of started that he's difficult to work with so um that's what I think kind of hurts the film in the end. And I also think it plays into the fact that I didn't even know this was a John Carpenter movie till about 10 years ago. Again, when I'm, when I'm a little kid watching this at home uh, on weekends, I, I don't know who John Carpenter is, but you don't really see a lot of Carpenter's style. Um, rewatching it and, re- and knowing that, and I'm really kind of hunting for Carpenter's aesthetic, there are some tense moments in the movie. There are some moments of you don't know how Chevy Chase's character is going to get out of this situation now. And I think Carpenter's really good at doing that, putting someone in a difficult situation. And while it's going on, there is nothing in that scene that is telling you, oh, they'll get out of it this way. I think there's a little bit of that in there. But this was really, you know, I know Starman, people say, especially me on the previous episode, uh, yeah, that that didn't feel like a Carpenter movie or I just forgot about it. But... Eh, going back, yeah, it really does feel like, you know, 
a, a different genre he's tackling, but it still feels like he's got his fingerprints all over it. This one, not so much. But all that being said, my personal take on Memoirs of an Invisible Man, it's fun. It takes place in San Francisco. I love that city. Um, you know, Chevy Chase, despite whatever has been said about him, he's a hell of a leading man. And, you know, he was at peak Chevy Chase time, you know, of his career. And um, I think it's a fun movie. Again, watch it for Sam Neill. Sam Neill's one of the best actors of the last 30 years. And he steals the movie as the, as the villain. And this came out right before Jurassic Park. So he was kind of right on the cusp of really blowing up as an actor stateside. And, yeah, that's Memoirs of an Invisible Man. It's, it's a lot of fun, but it's a little clunky. And I have to agree with that. Now, next up. So from the late 80s into the mid-90s, uh, Tales from the Crypt was huge on HBO. Like, anthology horror on TV was big. I still think it can be big. People knock anthologies. I don't, I mean, maybe there's not a lot of money to be made, but sure, even a low-budget anthology, a lot of fun. I'm on board. <laughs> um, but, so... Uh, 1989 to 1996 was Tales from the Crypt airing on HBO, and John Carpenter at the time was getting offers that were going nowhere. So him and his wife at the time, Sandy, wanted to team up to do smaller projects, which would um, kind of help her get kicked up the ladder to produce for him. And they had they kind of dusted off an old anthology um, project that they had called Body Bags from John Carpenter. Something's coming. Maybe I'll see you around. Huh? I see things. I think maybe I can help you. Something strange. Weird. Gruesome. Painful sex. Yes, yes! When can we do it? Something shocking. <coughs> Your brains are the only food on which we can thrive. <coughs> what have you done to me? Something... Terrifying. I had to finish digging your grave. John Carpenter presents Body Bags. Released on August 8th, 1993, it was uh, made for the Showtime channel. I'm not sure how old or young the Showtime movie channel was in 1993. I was five years old at the time uh, i know hbo and like cinemax was the prominent movie channel but i think showtime was on the up and up or on the up and coming and yeah so this was kind of a made for tv like anthology film uh three like 25 30 minute films to make up a 90 minute uh feature length anthology film uh, two of them directed by John Carpenter, and I have to acknowledge the third and I think final one in the film is directed by Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame. Um, Carpenter directed uh, the one Unleaded, which is what kicks it off, and Hair, which is actually a really funny body horror movie. Uh, Toby Hooper's Baseball Man stars none other than um, I believe it's I believe Mark Hamill is in that and. One cool thing about this is this movie also feels like a lot of horror directors who are buddies outside of 
making horror movies kind of teaming up and all kind of working together and pitch in on this thing. Uh, Wes Craven has a cameo in the first uh, installment of the film. Um, I believe there's a character in it named Sam Raimi. And however, also Sam Raimi also has a cameo as like a, a dead guy in Carpenter's one of in, in um in Unleaded, uh, the the first installment. Uh, another cool thing, I believe Greg Nicotero, who if you don't know who that is, Greg Nicotero was famous visual effects artist. Uh, kind of was on the you know beginning of his career working with Tom Savini and whatnot, and kind of coming up through the ranks. And obviously, a lot of people know Greg Nicotero now because he is the executive producer and showrunner of The Walking Dead. But he has like a small bit part in a. The movie uh, Hair, that one, um, it, it's just like a guy walking a dog, I think. And <laughs> But they, they take a lot of uh, notice of how beautiful his hair is. And so he's got a little cameo. And also, he's got a little cameo in it. And also, uh, Roger Corman pops up there as a, in there as a doctor. Uh, so it's cool to kind of see these little you know, elements of other horror directors and producers and people in the genre all kind of coming together. Uh, one thing I also thought this w- was cool is John Carpenter is acting in the movie. He is in the wraparound segments as well as a director of two out of the three. Uh, wraparound segments are obviously the, you know, things that kind of tie the anthology together and the whole wraparound concept is because this is called body bags and has a uh, vibe to it of the morgue. (laughs) Um, John Carpenter plays the coroner of the morgue and he's the one who kind of gets you from story to story and preps you to what you're about to watch before the, um, the, the, the next story hits. Uh, it's kind of cool seeing Carpenter in front of the camera. It's it's really cool. He's actually really funny, really intriguing. I didn't think he'd want to do something like this, but I guess it, it just was something new and something cool for him. Um, and, you know, the makeup job on him makes him literally look like a, a maybe not newly dead body, but he looks like he's been dead for, you know, a few weeks. <laughs> So it's it's kind of cool to see him like in this role. It, it, it's a little the, the film out of past Carpenter movies of suspenseful horror thrillers. It's a little fun. It feels like he's having fun, and like that's kind of the tone of anthologies. Usually, there's they're fun. You know, yeah, you can make them scary and go for it, swing for the fences. But I feel like anthologies, no matter the concept, no matter the genre. You gotta make them feel fun for the audience, and Body Bags does that really well. And I also should add another cool casting decision is the morgue worker. One of the workers in the morgue uh, is a young Tom Arnold. I mean, I think he was in a lot of movies here and there, but it was like right before he started really showing up and stuff. Uh, So yeah, Tom Arnold's in there as well. It's kind of cool. So to kind of just break down the plots of the segments as well, uh, the first one, I believe, is called The Gas Station, or at least that was a shooting title, and then they changed it to Unleaded, or I got that uh, backwards a little bit. Um, very simple in plot. It's almost like Carpenter's going back to his roots of making Halloween, where it's a simple plot, but the way you set things up and shoot things 
makes it a little more special. It, it's literally about a woman working her first night at a gas station on the overnight shift. I believe it's the overnight shift. Um, well, she's there at night anyway, and no one's around. So, <laughs> um, And uh, there is, I guess, a psychopathic murderer on the loose. And it ends up showing up and stalking this woman while she's working alone at this gas station. Uh, simple in premise, but again, the way this thing is set up and shot uh, actually feels very tense and very claustrophobic. And again, I think that's John Carpenter just going back to his roots. And um, yeah, it's it, it's a good one. Like I said, uh, that's the one where you have the cameo with Wes Craven and uh, Sam Raimi playing a dead body, uh, which is kind of cool. But the, the next one he directed uh, called Hair, uh, I think is one, the one that out of the two that he directed for this, that I think people kind of flock towards a little more, uh, starring Stacey Keach and Debbie Harry, the lead singer of Blondie. Uh, Stacey Keach would again go on to be in another John Carpenter film in a couple years. We'll touch on that in a little bit. I know I'm saying that a lot. But Stacey, this is actually kind of a comical film with some satire to it about you know male vanity and men trying to still have some good looks even in their middle ages and growing into old age um stacy keach plays a guy who's losing his hair and he's worried about his thinning hair and he's worried that you know everything's kind of the the looks he had growing up as a young man he doesn't really have anymore and so he enlists pretty much, I think, a plastic surgeon or something to help him with his hair growth. And it goes off the rails and he turns into like a fucking, he doesn't turn into a werewolf. I shouldn't say that because it's not a werewolf movie by any, by any pit. But he turns into like hair starts growing out of everywhere. He, hair just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And he, he's looking like Cousin It or he's looking like Michael J. Fox in uh, Teen Wolf at, by the end of the anthology, by the end of the episode, um, yeah, it's it's funny, but I think there's like a great uh, message about you know men as we get a little older and some things start getting taken away from us. It's kind of cool. Uh, the third one, not directed by Carpenter, but I should give it you know props, give it its due. Uh, Toby Hooper directed uh, the third one, uh, starring Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill, obviously the the great Luke Skywalker. Uh, he plays a baseball uh, a, a baseball player has a very big injury with his eye. He ends up having to lose one of his eyes, and so he links up with I guess a doctor who can do a transplant of another person's eye. I guess into where Mark Hamill's eye used to be, and once that happens, that's where the uh, horror of it all starts. It turns out the eye that is transplanted inside of uh, Mark Hamill's eye is uh, that of a from a body is from the body of a dead murderer, and it causes uh, Brent, who is Mark Hamill's character, to see some horrible things from unhinging his mind and nearly causing him to murder his beloved wife. Uh, cool stuff. Pretty pretty cool stuff. Uh, you can tell Toby Hooper is taking his. Um, inspirations from a lot of classical horror a lot of like uh the hands of orlac 1920 uh also films like mad love in 1935 there's just some similarities there with um 
you know, what Toby Hooper's trying to accomplish. But, um, yeah, I think it's also, there's a lot of people who like that one the most out of all the three stories. Uh, so to wrap things up on body bags, um, it was kind of a flash in the pan. I think it was fun. I think it was something that was made on the cheap that, uh, Carpenter was pretty proud of, but Showtime didn't really want to expand on it. You know, I think there was talks that if the budget was even lower, they could have maybe stretched it out and done like a series out of it, but nothing really came of that. Um, there seems to be really no, there seems to really have not been any hiccups with making this film. I mean, post-production seemed to go pretty smooth. Everything just seemed to click, but, uh, Showtime just kind of treated it as a one-off experiment, I guess. And it did receive some nominations, the cable ACE awards nominated body bags with best makeup, best actor, Stacy Keach and best writing uh, by Billy Brown and Dan Angel lost in all three categories, but Hey, it's always good to be nominated. Uh, so that's Body Bags. Check it out. Track it down. I think there's some Blu-rays. I think it's streaming in a couple places, one of them being Shudder. I think you can probably find it on, like, uh, it might be, gosh, I don't even, a couple other places. I think it's on Amazon Prime, too, and whatnot. It's out there. Check it out. So next up is a film that I think is what a lot of people think is the last good John Carpenter-directed film. Uh, he still has a few more after that, but a lot of people say uh, this was the one that I think it doesn't get much better after this. And in theory, I agree. I mean, I'll, I'll watch the other ones just as a fan after the fact, but uh, this is In the Mouth of Madness. So with a release date of February 3rd, 1995, we get In the Mouth of Madness. And this is, uh, I feel like this film kind of really hits in the pantheon of what horror looked like in the 1990s. We started seeing signs of films kind of like this throughout the, the era. And I, this is midway through the 90s. And this just feels like a 1990s horror film everything about it uh just the the aesthetic and um this again was 
like I said, Carpenter, who worked with Sam Neill on in, on um, on memoirs of a, on memoirs of an Invisible Man, reunites with him uh, for this one, and you could tell Carpenter and Sam Neill make a good uh, actor and directing duo, and I think that also translates into this one as it did in the previous version. This time, Sam Neill is in the lead role with the plot of this movie being pretty interesting. Plot of said film is when a horror novelist by the name of Sutter Kane goes missing, an insurance investigator, John Trent, played by Sam Neill, scrutinizes the claim made by his publisher, Jackson Harglow, who's played by Charlton Heston in a small part, and endeavors to retrieve a yet-to-be-released manuscript of the writer's whereabouts. Accompanied by the novelist's editor and distributed by nightmares from reading Kane's other novels, Trent makes an eerie nightmare trek to a supernatural town in New Hampshire. Now, I don't think this was filmed in New Hampshire, but there is kind of a cool New England aesthetic to the movie that, you know, anything that takes place in New England, me being from New England, I'm on board with because I just love horror films that take place in that region because I think you just get the best horror stories there's so much history from where i'm from in the world that i just eat it up even though i think this film was definitely not filmed in uh new hampshire i don't know if any films actually filmed in new hampshire but um it's 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 a cool uh kind of movie that if if you like a movie about a guy or if you like the movie about a character who is like a detective or something or a police officer on an investigation. He's got to go to like a weird town kind of film and the mouth of madness is perfect for that uh, thing. You know, reality starts getting bent and you, you just, you don't know what's real and what's not all the way up until the final moments of the film for the most part. Uh, yeah. And Sam Neill really brings it as uh, in this kind of genre. I mean, he was able to go on to do other things like Event Horizon, which I think he's great in, which by the way, Event Horizon off topic, scary fucking movie. I remember they promoted that as like a fun sci-fi action film when I was a kid. And then I put it on one night and, uh, yeah, that movie gave me nightmares. But anyway, uh, I guess in the mouth of madness had been around for close to a decade. It's the script was floating around, uh, in the late 80s, I think 1988 is when it first started popping up. Uh, other directors got attached to it. Tony Randall, who made Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, um, which a lot of people think is just as good as the original Hellraiser. Um, eh, I'm not going to... I guess I could see that point. Uh, and I guess uh, Tony Randall also worked on effects crew with uh, Carpenter on Escape from New York, so he had a close ties with Carpenter. Uh, another director attached to it was Mary Lambert, who I guess went on to do Pet Cemetery, and um, I guess George A. Romero's name was floating around. I don't think he was attached to this, but um, there were some people who worked with Carpenter on previous projects who now were heads, or who were executives over at New Line Cinema, and I think it was uh, Michael DeLuca who knew Carpenter and really wanted to push him to do this project, but I think it was too early in the game. It was still the late 80s. He had just done Prince of Darkness, and I don't think he was looking for something like this at the time, but uh, he stayed persistent and eventually got Carpenter to do this. Uh, he got kind of giddy about it this time around, and 
uh, Carpenter was excited by the cerebral cerebral possibilities of the material. And he started to think about how the grim subject matter would tie into things like The Thing and Prince of Darkness. And I guess he became fond of referring to these three pictures as his apocalypse trilogy, even if no such trilogy ever been formally planned. And I guess you can kind of think of it. The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness kind of have that same tone. And so, yeah, I guess it is kind of Carpenter's little trilogy of movies that aren't necessarily officially trilogies of films. I always think that's cool when filmmakers have like three films that don't necessarily on paper tie together story-wise, but tone-wise, they could all be in the same universe. And learning that, I actually thought was pretty cool. Budget on the film was $8 million, and Carpenter, I guess they I guess they went into production 15 days after Body Bags had premiered on Showtime. And the film was originally slated to premiere, I think, September of 1994. Uh, so by the time they wrapped, it was like, October 93 so there was close to a year of post-production that they could do on this because there's a lot of special effects that visual effects that were going to go into this film that uh, still made the cut but you know they needed more time and it was a pretty cozy post-production process as it seems to me um, from what I'm reading but uh, yeah there was other things that were going to go into play that they just couldn't afford Uh, they wanted to use Enter Sandman Metallica song to uh, be in the the opening of the film or something, and they just they, they couldn't get the money for that. Uh, they they tried to keep the budget cheap on it, and rightfully so. I think I don't think you need to go too over the top with a film like this. Uh, yeah, but again, it's just one of those movies that is about a guy on a on a case or something, and he goes somewhere, and it just turns into a a, a goddamn nightmare. <laughs> uh, a lot of fun. Like I said, a lot of people think this is his last real good movie, although uh, it did have poor box office showings. The film uh, was recognized still with some prestigious organizations. Uh, When the film was released, the early box office takings were promising. Uh, The film coming in at number four on its opening weekend, but it quickly took a sharp nosedive. Ultimately came in at number 122 for the 1995 box office office season. yeah, I mean, it was also up against some stiff competition, I guess, at some award shows and uh, festivals. Uh, went up against Roman Polanski's Death and the Maiden and Tony Scott's True Romance. Uh, Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave. Carpenter got his got over his disappointment by being awarded the Critics Award and the Academy of Saturn Awards for Best Horror Film and Best Makeup. From Dust Till Dawn claimed the former, while Carpenter's old colleague Rob Bottin won the latter for his work on Seven. Again, Rob Bottin and Carpenter. <laughs> so with the nosedive of In the Mouth of Madness at the box office, that kind of changed things up for what was next. I think the they were going to try and produce over at Universal, him and his wife Sandy King, a remake of Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I believe had fell, fallen apart a couple years earlier, uh, in the beginning of the decade. Um, the studio wasn't willing to spend the money to realize John's idea, so Carpenter now found himself obliged to direct a picture to order. And in lieu of Creature, Universal settled on another long gestating remake, and that remake would be his next film, Village of the Damned. At precisely 10 a.m., 
in a quiet seaside village. Something happened. Something unexplainable. Something unbelievable. There's a lot of pregnancies, much more than would normally be expected. All the pregnancies seem to date from the day of the blackout. This town is about to discover that looks can kill. There have been a few casualties. I should say accidents that might be related to contact with the children. My daughter was involved. Who are they? <gasps> they have one mind that they share between them. Father? Let us pray. You've been discussing us with Dr. Vern. What did she tell you? You're hiding something. The police can't do anything to stop the children. Get out while you can. Something so much more powerful than we'll ever be. What are you gonna do? The only thing that we can do. You can't stop us, you know. Don't try. I should go back and kind of correct myself a little bit. Because in the Mouth of Madness, which was was released in February '95, uh, originally was originally was supposed to be released in September of '94, uh, got pushed a little bit because of I think what it was up against at award ceremonies and film festivals. Um, you know, I, I think maybe they thought they were up against too much a stiff competition at the time. Uh, so literally, because this movie got pushed in to 95 you got two carpenter films within i think two months of each other because village of the damned is released in april of 1995 uh so crazy scheduling so i think when he had wrapped uh some post-production things where a director was needed on uh, in the mouth of madness he jumped at making village of the damned or i shouldn't say jumped at but i think got lewd into doing it for universal uh, if that clears up any of my own personal confusion here. But uh, let's talk Village of the Damned, because on paper, I actually think this is a cool movie. Um, let's talk about the cast. Christopher Reeve, which I think this may have been one of his last performances before he had his accident that put him in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Uh, I want to say it was not long after this, or it was very close in timing. I, I again, I get, I'm not, I, I don't know when it exactly happened here. So, but this was definitely one of the last times you saw Christopher Reeve, you know, as he was prior to his his accident. Uh, he's up in the lead role. Uh, you also have um, Kirstie Alley in there as a doctor, Doctor Susan Verner. Uh, she's kind of the second uh, leading role. Mark Hamill is in there, who honestly I think steals the movie. Uh, Christopher Reeve and Kirstie Alley are pretty good in it, but Mark Hamill plays a very unhinged reverend who uh, goes off the deep end as the movie goes on. Um, you also got Meredith Salinger in there as well. Both John Carpenter and Sandy King also with cameos in there. Uh, this movie is about evil children. <laughs> Uh, so the, and it does evil children really well because they are pretty fucking evil. 
So the film, again, like in the Mouth of Madness, could also make as a good double feature, I guess, because it is a movie about a weird occurrence, things going on in a small town. Uh, plot here is 10 months after the small California town of Midwich was struck by a mysterious event during which everyone in the village fell unconscious at once. Ten local women give birth on the same day as the unsettling calm and um, and unemotional children grow at an abnormally fast rate. It becomes clear that they can read adults' minds and force people to harm themselves. A local doctor, played by Christopher Reeve, and a federal agent, Susan Verner, played by Kirstie Alley, must team up to battle the alien children. Now, this, like I just said, is a remake by Universal. Made 35 years prior in 1960. Um, yeah, and the, the original one is obviously a lot more well-received than Carpenter's remake. And I'll be completely blunt right here. Uh, I think on paper this movie is sounds awesome. I will watch evil kid movies <laughs> all the time. But I also will say this. I don't know a lot about it. I've only seen it once. Maybe twice. Can't remember. But I know I've definitely seen it once. Uh, it's it's not the best remake. And I'm really let down on it. I think go see it for evil, creepy kids. Or go see it because Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill, again, steals the show and everything he's in. I don't know why he didn't have this big A-list career post-Star Wars, but then again, I'm kind of happy he didn't because he gets to do cool performances. He gets to be the voice of the Joker on the Batman animated series. He gets to do fun roles. Um, it's just weird that like a guy who played Luke Skywalker, I don't know, didn't get that career. But again, go see it for Mark Hamill. His performance, I think, steals it. I think he does some pretty outlandish things. Uh, you can, yeah, just follow it based off of that. But a lot of the, the, it's, it's, I don't think it was the right choice. And the, from what I'm reading, it kind of sounded like Carpenter had his heart set on making a Creature from the Black Lagoon remake. I mean, personally, I think he's got to get in line for that because there's a lot of directors who I think wanted to remake, especially at this time, a lot of the universal monster films. Um, but Village of the Damned, the original, is great. It's a lot of fun. The 1960 version, it's it's a fun movie of that era of the strange sci-fi uh, movie. And the thing is, is like I feel like it was promoted as a, one of those B-movies of that era. It doesn't feel like a B-movie. Um, a little bit of Carpenter's 95 remake feels like a B-movie of the 90s. Uh, it started to get that aesthetic to me there's there's a, there's a look to those straight to video 90s films uh that i think village of the damned has and i i don't know it's just that's just my personal take i would have to say in his entire filmography i'd put this at the bottom trailer looks great trailer gets you into it i remember seeing it as a kid and thinking like oh my god this is gonna be scary and maybe it would be scary if i saw it as a kid but i just didn't respond to it and that's just my personal take but I think, you know, I think it's worth one viewing for those reasons I said above. Um, I think there's an effort there, but I don't think it's the effort that even when Carpenter was making a little $1 million movie back 15, 20 years prior, um, I don't know. This doesn't feel like his movie. 
And I think there's kind of the same vibe with Memoirs of the Invisible Man. It doesn't, it feels more like a committee than just one man going out and making his film. I could be wrong about that. Uh, he could have just, I don't know, just didn't work. But um, track it down. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. I think the original might be streaming in some places, but I don't know if the Carpenter remake is streaming anywhere. There is a, a Shout Factory Blu-ray uh, that you can track down, but that's really kind of it. Um, yeah, so I don't know, track it down or not. I don't know. I didn't really give it a good sales pitch there, but if you're doing a carpenter binge, go for it. So we're in the mid 1990s now, and it is here where there's a narrative going around that, that John Carpenter's aesthetic and his style, his simplistic, but compelling style isn't necessarily effective anymore, uh, with, box office bombs like Village of the Damned, uh, Escape from New York, and Memoirs of an Invisible Man. So I guess he's kind of 0 for 3 with success so far in the 1990s, although In the Mouth of Madness, again, does kind of get its cult following in the years to come, especially recently, I think. Um, so oddly enough, a opportunity lands on Carpenter's desk to do a sequel to one of his classics, uh, Escape from New York uh, was released about 15 years earlier than its sequel. And it's got a bigger budget. It's got a big, this one, well, I should say this sequel has now a bigger budget, um, more special effects, a lot of over-the-top things, and a brand new cast, but it uh, reunites Carpenter with Kurt Russell. And that is the sequel to Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., Welcome to the theater. For everyone's enjoyment, we'd like to remind you of the following rules. No talking. No smoking. No littering. No red meat. No freedom of religion. And remember, all marriages must be approved by the Department of Health. Failure to obey these rules will result in immediate loss of citizenship and deportation to the island of Los Angeles. Enjoy the show. Your rules are really beginning to annoy me. We ran a psycho profile on him using a database of five million sociopathic personalities. He hit the bottom of the curve. Catches on quick, doesn't she? Loves a winner. They say we play a little Bangkok rules. Nobody draws until this hits the ground. You ready? Trailer for this thing, over the top. Looks like it has some high power, high octane action, uh, which kind of parallels, which is kind of the opposite of what you saw in Escape from New York. I mean, Escape from New York has some kick-ass gunfights and shootouts and a lot of tense, suspenseful moments, but it's not like a high octane movie. So the trailer feels for this feels a little different, and it really kind of is that upping the ante, big budget uh movie of the 90s of the 
of a 90s blockbuster and it really was an attempt at doing a big summer blockbuster which is something you know john carpenter i don't think necessarily ever really did so it's kind of cool in premise but as the chapter in assault on the system the nonconformist cinema of john carpenter states bigger isn't always better so this project reunites john carpenter with her his old producing partner deborah hill uh to make this film but it one thing I've learned is him and Kurt Russell had actually been talking about doing Escape from L.A. since probably around the time they were doing Big Trouble in Little China. That's like late nine, mid, to, mid to late 80s, 1986-ish. I guess the conversations were being had about Escape from L.A. And I guess it went kaput because of uh, producer Dila De Laurentiis, who was going to back it, had some financial problems, so it fell apart. And I guess, you know, a few years later in the early 90s, the conversations began to happen again with Kurt Russell and John Carpenter to make this film. Budget on this thing was $50 million that was backed by Paramount Pictures, uh, an even higher budget than John had worked with on Memoirs of the Invisible Man. Uh, pretty solid cast on this movie. Uh, Kurt Russell obviously is back as Snake Plissken in the lead, playing exactly how you think Snake Plissken would be. He's a pretty much just like how he was in Escape from New York. Uh, other co-stars are Steve Buscemi pops up in there. Uh, Stacy Keach, uh, like I said, Stacy Keach was going to reunite down the road with um, uh, with John Carpenter again. He does here. Peter Fonda, I think I believe is the main villain in this movie. Uh, Pam Greer in there as well was her first of two outings working for Carpenter at the tail end of his directing career. Um, who else do we got in this thing? Cliff Robertson is in there. And oddly enough, uh, Bruce Campbell pops up in there and as his character name is the Surgeon General. And it's funny you mentioned, it's funny I mentioned Bruce Campbell being in the movie because Escape from L.A. has a very Evil Dead 2 vibe to it. It's a little more campy at times. I don't want to say the movie is full of camp, but... Uh, there's a, just a little more satire to it. I, I think if satire is the, the word, uh, there's a lot of just overtly poking fun at right-wing conservative Christian beliefs that you see uh, throughout woven throughout the film, which is odd to me because uh, you know Carpenter and Kurt Russell have a great working relationship uh, and seem to be you know friends offset as well. Kurt Russell supposedly, at least according to this book and from some other research I'd done, uh, Kurt Russell's got a lot of conservative views on things. He's well known for that. You know, he's not, I think in this day and age, and you say that immediately paints a picture of, well, I'm not going to go into that, but um, he is a little right-wing leaning, I think. Uh, and Carpenter has a very, you know, a liberal left-wing leaning outlook so i kind of find it interesting that the two of them were able to come together and you know make a film with a message like this and you know russell's conservative views are well known but he respected john and didn't try to uh, curtail him from getting his vision on screen the film is full of pointed barbs directed at conservative conservative christians in particular make, making it john's most overtly political film outside of they live he described the basic concept thus the country has become a theory uh theocracy of la 
in the last free zone in America. The president is now a Christian right-wing guy who is permanently in office, and L.A. has become a deportation area for the morally guilty in America. The new police state sends abortion doctors, runaways, prostitutes, atheists, and even Muslims there. All these people are deported for having the wrong ideals. Huh. That sounds kind of similar to things I read in the news today. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, so Escape from New York has a very uh, kind of grim tone to it. Escape from L.A. still has a grim vibe to it of the future and a possible future of that. But from the few times I've watched it, again, it it is you could kind of compare it to like Evil Dead 2. Or something. There's just a, there's a little more camp value to it, still with a political message. So the basic plot of this film uh, <laughs> uh, is again Snake Plissken's being hired to do something that, frankly, he doesn't even really want to do. It seems uh, that's kind of the world that I just described for you that the film takes place. But the overall plot is uh, this president, this conservative president. Um, who's made Los Angeles this island after a huge earthquake uh, where he just kind of dumps all the people that don't believe in him uh, off to that island. Uh, But when the president's daughter nabs a detonator to her dad's apocalyptic weapon and sneaks into L.A. to be with the rebel leader she loves, the government taps commando-turned-crook Snake Plissken to retrieve the young woman, and if he doesn't succeed quickly, he'll be executed. Uh, released on August 9th, 1996. I don't know if I said that. I remember seeing the previews for this and thinking it looked wild. Um, I remember there's... Snake's gotta, Snake's gotta do these, like, crazy games or he dies. Like, I remember he's gotta, like, shoot hoops with Steve Buscemi or something. And if he misses a basket, like he gets killed or something, I I was I always thought that was kind of weird, knowing what I know now about Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. and kind of the contrast the two films have. Um, I, I, I there's a crazy footage of him surfing on a big wave. <laughs> it's a it's um it's a crazy movie. I think it's a little over the top. My personal take on it. Uh, but it's fun. Escape from LA is fun. It's it's definitely. I think Carpenter kind of is a little bit like, eh, fuck it. At this point, <laughs> I don't know. I think he's happy to be working with Kurt Russell again. But um, yeah, maybe he's not like fuck it. But I think there's just an over the topness to the film. And Escape from New York is so kind of base level, simplistic, um, very tight with its special effects. And this one's just a little over the top. Um, a lot of people love it. A lot of people hate it. I'm a little lukewarm on it. I think it's cool that it got made. I, I obviously think if you make a movie like Escape from New York, the go-to for a sequel is, well, let's go to the West Coast and do Escape from L.A. So, yeah, that's that's Escape from L.A. Check it out. Find it. It's, it's, it's worth a watch. I mean, a lot of people gave it mixed reviews. I think one of the original screenwriters on Escape from New York uh, thought it lacked imagination. Uh, Stephen Holden is, I believe, who said that. Uh, Roger Ebert, who also didn't rate the first film particularly high, pretty much loved Escape from L.A. Uh, Three and a half out of four stars in writing John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. is a go-for-broke action extravaganza that satirizes the genre at the same time it's exploiting it. It's a dark vision of a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles leveled by a massive earthquake cut off 
from the mainland by a flooded San Fernando Valley and covered into a prison camp for the nation's undesirables. I don't want to read too much of that quote, but um, yeah, it, it, it definitely was something that I think it made its money back and whatnot. I don't want to go too much into those analytics, but it was a good bounce back from the box office duds from before. Um, but again, this one's always kind of split down the middle. But if anything, it's John Carpenter's attempt at a summer blockbuster. It's summer of 1996, which I think also had things like Independence Day and going on as well. Uh, it was good to see something like this um, kind of competing uh, for a top slot at the box office. So, next up. Released on October 30th, 1998, so a little over two years after Escape from L.A., is John Carpenter's Vampires. Have you ever seen a vampire? They're not romantic. Forget whatever you've seen in the movies. They don't turn into bats. Crosses don't work. If you want to kill one, you drive a wooden stake right through his heart. I think we got a nest inside this place. Let's get to work. Figure out at least six goons, maybe more. Chances are we'll find a master in here somewhere. That's what I'm going to say to kick this off here. Fun movie. A lot of people say In the Mouth of Madness is his last good film. I'm going to disagree. I think uh, Vampires is a fun, action-packed horror film. Uh, kind of gives off a little bit of Escape from New York vibes. Not plot-wise, but just like kind of tone. And uh, James Woods, who plays the lead role, uh character's name is Jack Crow. Uh, gives off a little bit of a more comical Snake Plissken kind of vibe. You know, I mean, I don't know the, the leather jacket, the, the kind of the badass, you know, vibe he gives off. It feels like a, a leading character Carpenter would, you know, love to create in his films. Uh, I remember people telling me, I mean, this movie came out. When I, was, I just turned ten years old when this came out. I did not see it in theaters. I, I caught up to this thing later in life. Uh, saw it in passing later in life and didn't, you know, didn't do much for me. I don't know why. I'm I'm not a vampire guy. I think with anything in the horror genre, you really, really got to do a something to sell me on vampires. I don't know. Like I love the original lore of Dracula and whatnot, and the old the old Universal monster, uh, Dracula, Bela Lugosi. 
and you know, there's some things here and there that I think are cool takes on the vampire subgenre. But all in all, like I don't, I don't haul ass to watch vampire films. You know what I mean? Uh, John Carpenter makes a vampire movie, and it's called Vampires. But oddly enough, it's an adaptation of um, a film called Vampires, but the S in Vampires has like a dollar sign because that's what John, or that's what James Woods' character does in the movie. He's like the leader of a pact of uh, vampire hunters, and his backstory is his parents were murdered by vampires. So uh, Jack Crow, uh, he has... Had one purpose in life, putting stakes through bloodsuckers' suckers hearts. With his battle-happened crew of vampire killers and the assistance of the Catholic Church. I always thought that was kind of a cool thing, like the Vatican's involved. They, like, hire him to go out and track down these vampires. Uh, so uh, Crow and his crew uh, roam New Mex- the New Mexico desert looking for undead lairs and, uh, to go after. Uh, but he meets his match when at a roadside motel. He comes face-to-face with um, Jan Valak, I think is the, the villain's name, uh, a vampire kingpin possessed of incredible powers. And, yeah, he's he's kind of a badass villain, actually. It's, it's a pretty cool villain. This film also has, like, a cool cast of uh, characters in it. Um, Daniel Baldwin plays kind of the number two guy in uh, the Jack Crow's crew. Now, uh, spoiler alert, I think pretty much all of the vampire hunting crew gets basically killed off early on in the movie. Uh, Yeah, you know, just kind of is what it is (laughs) because... You know, James Woods does have to kind of go it along. Um, I, I know I'm going to butcher some names, but it's Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa. I really hope I didn't butcher that, but he is a great character actor who's in the movie for just like the first 20 minutes. Uh, he's part of the uh, the vampire hunting crew. Anybody who knows him knows he plays uh, Shao Tsung in the Mortal Kombat movie. Uh, real good movie also, Showdown in Little Tokyo. He plays the villain in. And, I mean, uh, the 1999 Disney uh, original TV movie, Johnny Tsunami, I think he plays, like, the main character's uh, grandfather, who has a very funny catchphrase in the uh, movie. (laughs) But anyway, enough of that. Uh, Vampires. This Again, I I saw this again when I rewatched it. It's currently streaming on Netflix um, to just you know, re kind of learn the movie. And I went into it with low expectations, I think, because I I had seen it in passing, like I said, early on and didn't care. wasn't hyped about it. It's kind of the end of Carpenter's filmography. I only got a few more films to go over here. And I was, I I was wowed by it. It again, it's almost like he's going back to his roots with a vampire film and it has a Western vibe. It takes place in New Mexico I don't know if it's actually shot in New Mexico, but that's where the setting's at. It's definitely out west, uh, out southwest, I should say. Uh, it's it, you know kind of turns into like a cat and mouse game between uh, James Woods's character and um, the villain, the, the the this this vampire, and it's kind of a simple plot. The first fifteen minutes are these crew of vampire hunters storm this house, which they call a nest. Yeah, which is where, like, there's, a, I think, about, like, a dozen vampires hanging out. And the catch is uh, that kind of lures the main villain into it is they kill off 
everybody in the house, all the vampires, and they do it in a cool way. They like stab them in the, they, they, they like wound them. They don't fully kill them, but then they like hook them up to like a something and drag them out into the sunlight and they like, you know, spine, you know, they combust into flames just like how vampires supposedly do. And it's a cool special effect. And by the way, the, one of the visual effects artists, uh, credited right there in the beginning, uh, Greg Nicotero, who worked with him on body bags and also, you know, showrunner, executive producer of the walking dead. And that's a cool thing. I think you see a lot of early workings of the gore in the, in the practical and visual effects you see in the walking dead in this movie. And this is still about 10, 12 years out from when they adapted that comic book series into a show. And, I I do kind of see a lot of early workings. I, I, Nicotero, I don't know. I don't know if it's K and B. I got to go back and look at the credits again because I know Nicotero's like in a company called K and B, and it's all their last names. And I don't know who the other two guys were, but I'm assuming maybe it was uh, K and B that did it. I, I I don't know, but I I have my assumptions now, and I'm thinking out loud. Uh, but yeah, you see, it, it, it there are some effects that remind you of like kills in the walking dead but um back to the kind of the situation that kicks off the main plot is uh so all these vampires get killed off but they don't find the leader of this nest and it turns out i guess he was like as there's a shot where like they're pulling away from the house after the job is done you know these hands come up through a dirt mound where he you know this vampire was buried and the vampire comes after the guys while they're uh partying and it's just a cool, very, uh, very Western feel to it that kicks off a plot about vampires. And only Carpenter could do something like that. Well, maybe not only Carpenter, but he could kick off a, he could blend the genres of vampire and Western, which I think is something a lot of people like to do. They like to put vampires in different scenarios, take them out of these castles and, you know, Europe and put them in these, you know, different kind of genres. And I think he does a good job here. I really does. I th- I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just make my segment about vampires just like a review of how good it was and how you guys should maybe give it another shot if you passed on it. So that is John Carpenter's Vampires, and that is wraps up his run in the 1990s, and we go into a early 2000s late summer film which I have a theory about that I've read things about on the internet as well, and I'm going to get to it on the other side of the trailer. And that is 2001's Ghost of Mars. Police officer, anybody there? We've got a situation here. On August 24th. My job is to bring you back to stand trial. I ain't going back. The prisoner she's watching. We need us, and we need you. We'll be watching her back. Come on, time to stay alive. So I feel like I saw every movie in the summer of 2001. Uh, I feel like I was at the theater every Friday night with friends. That was our going out thing before we could, uh, you know, uh, like really go out and party. I was 13, 12, going on 13 years old that summer. That was a great summer from what I uh, can recall. And I, but I, I missed Ghost of Mars. I think by the end of August, I kind of run out of steam. And there's that, you know, age old saying that a lot of, uh, I think a lot of bad movies come out at the end of the summer. A lot of the blockbusters have kind of already come out, you know, and so they, they usually put in a few things at the end of summer that, 
either they're trying to do like Oscar bait, you know, early on, or it's movies that, you know, have action and, but they're not very good. And Ghost of Mars comes out at the end of the summer. And to be honest, I don't think Ghost of Mars is really that good of a movie, but I think uh, in in concept and on paper, it's actually, you know, again, a cool plot. Carpenter's movies have good plot to them. Uh, pacing sometimes is a problem uh, with some of his maybe not so great films. But then again, there's still something about them that entices you. Uh, Ghost of Mars, here's the plot. Long inhabited by human settlers, the red planet has become the manifest destiny of an overpopulated Earth. Nearly 640,000 people now live and work all over Mars, mining the planet for its abundance and natural resources. But one of those mining operations has uncovered a deadly mother load of long dormant Martian civilization whose warriors are systematically taking over the bodies of human intruders. That's fucking cool. Yeah, I mean, that's really cool. Um, yeah, so Ice Cube plays like a prisoner on Mars or something, and he, he's under heavy watch uh, by guards and whatnot. Uh, one of you could probably tell from the little 30 second trailer I played where they used an Eminem and D12 song in it, which I always thought was kind of cool, and now it's just kind of corny. Like, I, I just pictured John Carpenter watching the preview and going, Who the fuck put, who the fuck put rap in my in my trailer but anyway <laughs> it works and it kind of gets you hyped but the one one of these one of the times i was watching this i've seen it a few times uh for something that's not really my favorite movie but i've, I've seen it a few times and um i'm watching this and i'm going there's like a parallel between there's there's definitely some assault on precinct 13 vibes to it uh with kind of guards and prisoners working together to fight a more common enemy and um there also to me just felt like this was an escape movie i'm referencing escape from la or escape from new york and i did some digging on the internet and i if i can find the links to where i found it and look i i'm not gonna I'm not trying to promote fake news here. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not. I'm not. I, I like to live within the world of facts and factual things. I'm, I'm not a journalist, but I feel like I sometimes do journalistic things for this show. But I, I when I read this, uh, I kind of went, "Huh, I could see that." Supposedly, uh, this was supposed to be a third escape mil- film. Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., and then they were going to be like, fuck it, we're going to space. <laughs> it was going to be Escape from Mars or something. And I guess uh, something, again, I, I don't know where I'm, I don't know what's factual and what's not, but I guess the stories I've read were Kurt Russell didn't want to do it, and if Kurt Russell's out, to, there's no Snake Plissken. You can't just cast somebody else especially when a second one was five years prior that it came out ice cube's character to me strikes me a little i mean he's not doing a snake plissken impression the whole time but ice cube's character in it uh ice cube being the main character in it for the most part um does have some snake plissken traits of just kind of being this loner badass 
And I, I, I just remember, and then I read like, you know, they, they pitched this around to the studio and they didn't want it. They didn't want to do a third one or Carpenter didn't want to do a third one, but then he did. And then the studio was kind of, nah, well, why does, why do they need to go to Mars? But I'll tell you what, we'll make this into escape from New York or escape from LA, but not an escape film. And if you get what I'm trying to say here, uh, it's pretty much an escape movie without uh, Snake Plissken without like it, it has that same kind of flow to it. it has the same vibe has a lot of the same stakes um, it's kind of a it's kind of dull it has a very slow pacing for me that I'm just not into um, and I know Carpenter does kind of like to take his time sometimes but uh, it just it didn't work for me but I can appreciate it because if that's true I can believe it I I, I do kind of see elements of this maybe at one point being a screenplay for a third escape film, which is kind of cool. Uh, so cast of this movie, uh, Natasha Henstridge, Jason Statham, a young Jason Statham. This is pre, this is right before those transporter movies started coming out. I think yeah, this is 2001. I think the first transporter was 2002. Um, Ice Cube obviously in it as well. Pam Greer is back. She was in Escape from uh, L.A., She's in that. A few cool character actors. Rex Lynn, if you know who that is. Uh, you'll know who that is if you look him up. Um, Joanna Cassidy in this as well. Sela uh, Duvall. Cool fucking movie. Uh, cool fucking movie. Some, again, some cool special effects. Cool makeup effects to the uh, aliens of Mars. Uh, the only thing, I don't know if this is explained a lot in the film but like they're walking around outside with like no helmets or oxygen tanks so i guess you can just do that on mars i I don't know maybe i missed something i probably did i'm sorry i'm not too much of a cinephile on ghosts of mars uh do i recommend ghosts of mars yeah sure it's it's a good one-time thing again it's this is john carpenter at the end of his run um but i say he's at the end of his run but yet you know his production company, Storm King, is all over his films of the 1990s. So I think he was getting a resurgence creatively. But, you know, the, the movies I don't think were hitting like they were in the 1980s. But, uh, you know, Ghost of Mars uh, was his last, I have to say, theatrical film. He made three more films after that. Uh, I'll touch on I'm going to breeze through them a little bit because... Well, I'm going to breeze through two out of the three of them because they were made for TV and they're, they were not theatrical. They were part of a anthology series. Uh, though he made two, there was two seasons of a show called Masters of Horror.
was definitely my lucky day. There it is again. is coming to showtime just in time for halloween they're expecting you so my two cents on masters of horror is simply this uh they're so much fun again going back to body bags anthology horror is the best and this this premiered on showtime back in 2005 there's two seasons so i'm sure it's 2005 2006 both seasons are streaming for free on Tubi. I remember going to like Walmart and seeing like DVD copies of uh, the the seasons, and I think they do like little single DVDs of an episode, so you could buy John Carpenter's episode. Uh, he did two. I'm, I'm not sure if just like everybody who worked on season one came back for season two. Uh, I believe this was show run by uh, Mick Garris, who is someone who I reached out to to come on this show at one point. Uh, he had to pass, but that's just, that's showbiz, baby. Uh, but he has a great podcast called Postmortem and, uh, listen to it weekly every Wednesday on the Dread Central Podcast Network. He is worked in close cahoots with Stephen King, Steven Spielberg, a lot of the ABC produced, uh, Stephen King miniseries, um, uh, were directed and like written by him, things like The Stand and, uh, uh, he did the Shining TV series. He so he executive produced, and I think was the, like the main showrunner on the show. The guy who pieced it all together and brought guys like Carpenter, John Landis, Joe Dante, Toby Hooper on to do segments for the show. Uh, I think it's like ten episodes each. Uh, I'll, I'm just gonna breeze through these two uh, real quick because um, they're fucking awesome. But like, you should just kind of go check them out to decide for yourself and. Pretty much it's John Carpenter deciding to work with lower budgets than he used to. I don't think he was getting you know gigs to make feature films anymore, and he had taken quite the hiatus after the new Millennium base, after Ghosts of Mars in 2001. Um, uh, but Carpenter's uh, installments were these two. Uh, on season one, Carpenter did uh, a... A segment called Cigarette Burns uh, about a man who hunts for a copy of a rare film that is said to incite its audience to a frenzy before the theater in which it plays bursts into flames. This was also, I think, the first time John Carpenter worked with his son, Cody, who's a composer who has teamed up with his, him and the two of them have teamed up to pretty much like remaster all his old film scores and make some new music, uh, which we'll touch on in just a sec. Um. Uh, yeah, they they've worked together, but um, they've worked together as father and son. And Cody, as Cody came on, I think this is the first time he appears as a composer on Carpenter's work. Uh, yeah. And then the next one he had done was Pro Life on season two, and it's uh the episode stars Caitlin walks watch I don't know how to pronounce that as a pregnant girl who seeks an a to abort an unborn demon within her while her gun-toting father tries to prevent her from doing so. So I'm not going to touch too much on that, but let's just say uh, with a lot of recent events in the world right now, uh, I don't know, horror fans, I'm sure maybe seek that out uh, if you are comfortable with that kind of stuff. That, that, that's, that sounds like one of the most tongue-in-cheek 
subject matters John Carpenter has uh, tackled in any of his films. But um, again, horror is always a um, mirror put on society. And obviously things like that are always big in discussion from time to time within our country, just like right now. Uh, so yeah, that's Masters of Horror. Uh, two seasons. I think both are on Tubi. Check them out, and you know, check them out for John Carpenter, but also check them out to see some of the other installments by a lot of great horror directors. And now we are going to land on the final one of the episode. I did it. Well, I haven't done it yet, but I'm just gonna breeze through. I'm not gonna breeze through, but uh, we land on the final feature-length film John Carpenter did, and it was 2010's The Ward. What's the first thing you remember? Fire. What's your name? Kristen. Welcome to the ward. Your new home. Why am I here? You can't get them to tell you anything. Sometimes we take people away and they don't come back. If I were you, I'd watch out, new girl. There's a ghost in here. I'm sure you believe you saw what you say. I'm not crazy. She's the last one that got out. She's one of us, but she's gone now. She's going to kill us all. You've got to deal with them. We have to get out of here. so bad was it so audience members listeners whoever out there please help me if i got this wrong but i'm seeing conflicting things i i I see it's a 2010 release but i'm also seeing it's a 2011 release i also apparently this was distributed by warner brothers um so it seemed like a movie that was in theaters yet i have no recollection of this movie in theaters I've always thought Carpenter's last feature-length film was a straight-to-video movie. Um, But uh, just judging by some research that I've done, I guess, I don't know. I guess it, I mean, obviously, even anything that's straight-to-video still makes like a theatrical run, even if it's really small. Talking to all the independent filmmakers I have on this show who get their films immediately sent to streaming or digital download, they still pop up in about 10 theaters. But look, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Not even the book is telling me here that I've been going along with. But for the sake of this show, I guess it did make a theatrical run. Um, this film stars Amber Heard, who I know is in the uh, public eye a lot these days for her recent court case with ex-husband Johnny Depp. I'm not going to chime in on that. I'm just going to move along here. Uh, So anyway, the plot of the ward. Amber Heard's uh, character's name is Kristen, and she is committed. And she is committed to a psychiatric unit where it seems an angry spirit of a former patient is haunting the girls who 
are being treated there. Kristen makes desperate escape attempts after the staff ignore her warnings about the spirit. Uh, this movie gets like a lot of flack. I, a lot of people like to knock on it and say, yeah, this is John Carpenter going for a paycheck at this point in his career. Um, I, I, I don't think that, I think, I think there's fun things to work with within the film. Um, and I think, you know, he's really, as a director, kind of still testing some cool ideas out. It does, you, I think one of the reasons why I had to really hunt this thing down and be like, oh yeah, I forgot about the ward is because this, the plot of that movie, I feel like we've seen that a few times throughout the early 2000s, you know, the person who went mental who's trapped somewhere and nobody believes them and i mean i mean you've you've seen that actually even beyond the early 2000s you probably goes back to things like suspiria and whatnot or anything from the night crazy movie about someone going nuts and having delusions in the night you know a film in the 1970s but um i think the aesthetic of the movie just looks like it came out in 2003 and uh i don't know like it, it's fun it's I, I think it's fun um, but, and it has a cool kind of, I guess you could say twist ending at the very end, but, um, you, you also can kind of see it coming if you know films like this, but, uh, some facts about the movie, everybody that had worked on this film pretty much was new to working with John Carpenter. And I think it shows, but I think at this point in his career, you know, that, that things like that just happen. And, um, you know, it's completely new crew he's with, uh, and he thought directing was pretty much done for him. Uh, he had taken, this has been about five, six years since that last installment on, uh, Masters of Horror. And I think he'd been done. And I, I think one of the only jobs he had had is he was like a script reader for a while. He had done so many passes on reading a script and whatnot and telling companies if they should go with a guy or not. And, I guess that's kind of a cool gig. I hope I could, you know, get to that level at one point. But um, yeah, he spent years of doing that thinking he'd never direct again. And I think one, what had happened was he'd read so many bad scripts that he thought, no, I need to direct again. It was still in his blood. And, but I think he, um, the vibe I get from some of the stuff I've read is after he did The Ward, uh, I don't think he wanted to do something with a studio level because Warner Brothers was involved in it. And, you know, I, I think, you know, he wanted to go just make his own things or he needed to just maybe, maybe it was time for him to step aside. But The Ward, he also wanted to do it because it was a very female-driven film. He had never really done an all-female cast and the film was primarily all-female. Um, it's really about the girls in the movie. It's really about the uh, the women overcoming a mental hurdle in this film uh, with this ghastly entity that is harming these patients. Um, I, I think it's I think it's it's good in parts. I think it goes back and forth, but uh, I would suggest check it out. I don't know if it's I don't think the ward is streaming anywhere, but um, maybe I don't know. Actually, don't hold me to this. <laughs> There might be, somebody may have uploaded it to YouTube, I think I saw. Uh, do what you must. All right, so I did it. I did it all. I did his entire filmography. If you add it up, I've been talking, if you add it up between last, that, the last, if you add it up between the last episode and this one, I've been talking for about four hours. <sighs> um, some things I just want to touch on to wrap it up. Uh, 
from the mid nineties till about now, John Carpenter has still been thriving, just not as a director. I mean, from 1988 on when they were making those Halloween sequels, Halloween four, Halloween five, Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers, Halloween H2O, which Carpenter was approached to direct by Jamie Lee Curtis, but he passed on, um, Halloween resurrection, which by the way, people can hate on. I fucking actually think it's not that bad of a movie. (laughs) Um, uh, the Rob zombie Halloweens take them or leave them. Uh, yeah, he was probably collecting some massive royalty checks off those films. Uh, he still, that's what happens when you make a successful intellectual property. You're just able to kind of go do your own thing and sit back and ride it out while that thing makes money. Uh, yeah, and obviously that leads up to the Blumhouse films and how he was approached to executive produce, and he does the score with his son, Cody, and I think another band member. Uh, it's cool that he has involvement in those, you know, take those or leave those. I mean, I, I like the 2018 one Halloween kills had cool elements to it, but I think like I said on this show, I don't know if it was my bag, but we'll see what happens with the third one. Uh, and also one thing I, I wanted to mention, but I, I thought I'd just save it for the tail end. He is having a thriving career as a musician. He has been, he went out on tour, I think in 20, 2017, 2018, maybe 2019 as well. You know, he dropped uh, records of original music and, like, redone uh, scores from his films. Uh, he, I mean, music, he's a musician also outside of directing and everything else. He He's scored pretty much all of his films, I believe, for the most part. Um, big exception is The Thing, which Ennio Morricone scored. Um, which works perfectly fine. I think Carpenter's cool with it too. But yeah, he's also made it, you know, I mean, how cool is it to go to a John Carpenter concert and have them, his 75-year-old ass up in the front of the stage, like rocking out? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so like I said, this has been fun talking about my favorite director for two episodes. Obviously, I had to make it two episodes. Um, yeah, because I needed a break and, you know, other things. But thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next week on The Basement. Take care.